This is Hearts of Oak Podcast. Free speech, religious disagreement, children's rights, and open and free discussion on any topic are bedrock to a democratic free society, and we seek to promote and champion these basic rights. Join us. Let's keep the conversation going. And it's wonderful to have Godfrey Bloom join us once again. Godfrey, thank you so much for your time today. Pleasure. What a pleasure. And last time, of course, we delved into finance, which, of course, um, is one of your hats, one of your your backgrounds. Uh, but today we're going to go through a range of topics, uh, different news topics. Some you have tweeted, uh, some I've come across. But people obviously can find you at Godders Bloom on Twitter and GodfreyBloom.uk is your website. Um, maybe just mention what people can may find on the website before we jump into the stories, Godfrey. Uh, Yes, I have a number of pages. Uh, So, for example, not in order of priority, there's a gold page, which is now, I gather from my producer, the most comprehensive gold page, uh, independent, not-for-profit gold page in the country. Uh, It's very extensive with interviews and so forth. A very powerful uh, website, um, in my view. I just, I edit a lot of it. There's another one on climate. Uh, where I expose the fake science that is being put to us by the World Economic Forum on a daily basis. Um, That is in some detail. I think it's one of the biggest climate pages in the country, independent. Uh, And the other one is on health, where I get, uh, I edit papers and videos and stuff from all over the world. No big pharma is allowed on it. Nobody who is sponsored by Big Pharma is allowed on it verboten. So it is the voice, as it were, of people who are independent uh, of deep state, Big Pharma and everybody else. The sort of work really that we should be seeing from uh, mainstream media and particularly public service broadcasting. But of course, we're not because they're part of the conspiracy. No, 100 percent. So let's jump into the the first story, and this is certainly your area of expertise, neck of the woods, and that is finance. And it is this news that the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission that regulates the financial bodies in the US, the SEC has approved Bitcoin ETFs. What are they and what does it mean? It's given the green light for 11 exchange-traded funds for Bitcoin, opening the door for cryptocurrencies for new investors. Um, now, crypto is something I've uh, been very interested in probably three years. Um, I've followed it invested. Do you want to give us your thoughts on this? Because there's a lot of, uh, lot of celebration, I think, from those involved in crypto, but there's also, I think, a lot of concern on this as well. But what were your thoughts when you saw this, Godfrey? Well, I'm very sympathetic to Bitcoin. I've held Bitcoin in the past. I've made money on Bitcoin. Um, And uh, I think it's a great idea because it actually takes politicians and central banks uh, and commercial banks out of the game Uh, It is private. You have your wallet, you have your passport, and you've actually taken uh, basically your money off the table, your fiat currency off the table, and you've put it into something which cannot be inflated by politicians. Albeit, it it is a very volatile uh, 
commodity, very volatile indeed, as we all know. That isn't disputed by Bitcoin, Bitcoiners either, or hodlers as they call themselves. Um, so I am, number one, sympathetic. I also was a fund manager in the city for many years, uh, and I do know rather what I'm talking about. Uh, over 40 years in the city on product design teams, investments, so on and so forth. So I know my stuff. So if any hodlers are watching this, please don't tell me I don't understand something because I find it very annoying, especially when it's said by people with a couple of thousand pounds worth of Bitcoin hiding out in Des Moines or somewhere. I am an expert in these matters. Not an expert in Bitcoin per se, and I don't pretend to be, but the whole city regulatory uh, and central banking and banking situation uh, merge with the political dynamic I know about. I have won international prizes for knowing about this kind of shit. All right, moving on. What I don't like about this uh, ETF business, I'll come to the ETFs in a minute, is what you have done. The one thing that I liked about Bitcoin is that BlackRock, Vanguard, Goldman Sachs, the central banks and politicians couldn't get their neb end in. They couldn't get their hands on it. And that's the whole point. That is the whole entire point of Bitcoin. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, if you let these people in, and ETFs have let them in, the whole raison d'etre for Bitcoin has collapsed. And the people that are leaping up and down and thinking what a wonderful idea it is are frankly very naive because they don't know the other side of the coin. They know Bitcoin, but they don't understand product design and the way regulation and regulation works in cahoots with central banks. Uh, and politicians. They don't understand it because why would they? They've had no experience of that. They have not had in-depth experience on Wall Street or the City of London, which is where the major games are played. Now, the SEC is corrupt. The uh, Financial Conduct Authority in London is a poodle of the big banks and the investment companies. So they are allowed to do whatever they like. And an investment trust, uh, 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 excuse me, um, an ETF, an exchange-tainted fund, is a very loose combination, and it's very easy to manipulate prices in an ETF. Let's just take gold. I'm a gold bug, everybody knows, so I know something about these matters. With an exchange-traded fund, you'll probably find 20% of actual gold in species held. It's held probably in a vault somewhere with a, with a friendly bank, so it's, uh, very likely Hong Kong, Shanghai Bank. Uh, it's audited by and by by a very friendly firm of accountants uh, who run uh, the uh, fund uh, articles of association. So everybody's got a finger in the pie and they're all on the same side. This is one of the problems. So you're not going to get much in the way of whistleblowing if an exchange traded fund actually manipulates. Now, let's take the biggest manipulator on the face of the planet, which is JP Morgan. They've been manipulating the silver market for years. Uh, and you can do this quite easily with an exchange traded fund. And you've seen them manipulate the price of silver, particularly. They suppress the price of gold by pa trading paper, naked short selling, buying and selling gold that they don't have. Now, these are the sort of problems that we have. Now, gold is massive. It's a massive play. All the international central banks are buying gold, and, and, and Russia and China. Uh, all the central banks are now increasing their gold holdings. So it's a massive footprint. But even then, 
the paper gold market can suppress to an extent the price of gold. It can't hold it back in any great measure, as we've seen since Nixon came out of the, the, the gold window in, in 1971. We've seen that gold, we've seen that the 1971 dollar against gold fall to purchasing power of six cents. Been a disaster. The whole thing's a disaster. Gold is a preservation of wealth. It's not an investment. Gold is a preservation of wealth. Bitcoin is an investment and it's quite speculative. And you will see it move very closely in line with the NASDAQ. You can make money, you can lose money. And it's quite an exciting field to be in. And I've made money in it. But it isn't as yet a secure source uh, of wealth. It's only been around for a decade or so. And I heard the other day uh, a hodler talking about, he's actually written books. And he said, oh, well, gold has only been money for 150 years. This is mind-bogglingly stupid and ignorant, and it's something that you often find uh, in, in that space. Uh, the gold was designated in law, in Roman law, as money uh, in round about, I think it was 11 AD, and I could be wrong on that, but round about that time. So we've seen gold as lawful money for 2,000 years, and it is today. Uh, Bitcoin's been around for five minutes. So let's stop this nonsense. I've also heard, ah, now it's going to be an exchange-traded fund. Uh, we'll see portfolios go to 5%. Of, 5% of investment portfolios will go to Bitcoin. Now, at the moment, 0.5% of portfolios are in gold, which is a major central bank holding play. So the thought that Bitcoin is going to 5% is absolutely ludicrous. We've seen these bubbles before. We saw the Mississippi bubble in the 1700s. We've seen black tulips. We've seen all these things. Uh, and this gets hodlers bouncing off the walls because they are evangelical. Uh, they are evangelical. They are like the early Christians. And, of course, it wasn't long, and the parallel there, you might argue, with the early Christians is that Christianity wasn't in churches when it started. It was in people's homes. And it was an idea, a wonderful idea, which actually caught the world's imagination, Christianity, all those many years ago, and the Nicene Creed, so on and so forth. And then who got hold of it? The, the churches, the Catholic Church, uh, the Orthodox Church. Um, and so it goes on. Now, what's actually happened now? You've got this move from the little people having uh, Bitcoin and being protected by the uh, from the big bad people. The big bad people have now been let in through the front door and no good will come of it. Now, I might not still be around when this becomes clear. But no good will come of it. And I have noticed just recently a lot of hodlers of the more intelligent kind, because at the top of the, the scale uh, of Bitcoiners, uh, your Robert Breedloves and people like this who have their own channels are immensely well informed and clever. It's your middle ranking people who don't understand where this could go. And I, I'm just seeing a tiny shift a bit now to people saying, just a minute, what have we done? What have we done? Who have we let into our space? And people then come on and say, oh, they can't because there's a wallet and there's the blockchain and all this kind of thing. And I'm not going to go into that kind of detail now because there isn't time. But believe me, the clever guys at JP Morgan and Goldman Sachs will find a way to fiddle the price of Bitcoin, make no mistake, as they have with silver and gold. And I know because years ago in the city, I was one of those clever little shits. All right. I used to do it for a living. And I still have. I know I will still know how to do this, actually, if I sat down and I have actually doodled for a bit of a lark. 
on how I could do it. But maybe that's for another day. Well, yeah, we'll leave that. But I, I share your concern, those huge financial institutions having control that they haven't had before. So that is the uh, 100% agree. Let's move on to something different. And um, <clears throat> it seems though we're rerunning something here, discussion on masks and many issues. But here, the Metro, why it seems like everyone is sick right now and COVID isn't to blame. And it goes on to talk about people feeling under the weather and having a whole mixture of of, of viruses. Um, what were your thoughts on this? Because we've seen uh, the media tell us one story uh, over the last uh, three and a half years. Um, and it seems as though something's kind of on the horizon here, but telling us um, you may be sick, but don't worry, it, it's not COVID. What were your thoughts on this? Well, I finished my career, as you know, Peter, in the city um, as the chief executive or general manager, as they're better known in the life assurance industry, as the boss of a life assurance company. So I am uh, an ex-professional in the interpretation of uh, mortality statistics and health data. That's how I earned my living reasonably successfully. Uh, my Professional background is ACIA, not FCA. So I'm not an actuary, but I used to I used to have teams of actuaries working for me, so on and so forth. Uh, mine was more risk analysis, but that you know it's a fairly technical sort of position. But Nick Hudson is a great actuary uh, that we all know, and, and he will give you an actuarial perspective. But it's the same perspective as me. So what do you always do when you are assessing this kind of risk, global risk, actuarial risk, life insurance risk? or health insurance risk, you work out what you know. You have to say, what do we know? So we know that there are excess deaths. We know that round about uh, 55, 65,000 people are dying in this country, more than one would have expected. I'll just explain quickly excess deaths. We expect, say, 500,000 people to die of something every year in this country, five or 600,000. We know that from everything, car accidents, uh, heart attacks, um, kidney disease. It doesn't matter what it is. That's the ballpark figure that dies. Uh, and it's relatively straightforward to actually assess that kind of thing from an actuarial perspective. And you can get it in something called Stone and Cox, the books. You can look it up. You can look up what your life expectancy actually is. Uh, you know, I'm 74 years old. I'm reasonably fit. My life expectancy is 83. The great thing about Stone and Cox is you can never die. You've all got always got a life expectancy. But <laughs> leaving that aside... Um, so you have this situation where you know, we know that 55,000, 60,000 people are dying and we don't know why. We know that more people are becoming ill with all sorts of things, uh, blood, blood clots, cardiac, uh, uh, you know, we know all that. We know that. This isn't in dispute. This is a fact of life. And of course, some of the big life insurance companies in America, MetLife, for example, and Lincoln, have actually said we are very worried about this because the um, mortality statistics uh, in lives, class A lives that used to be there, um, uh, have got worse. So the situation we know is getting worse. We also know, which is far more anecdotal, which is always a dangerous game, anecdotal, that more people appear to be sick in some form than before uh, and for longer. So, yes, everybody gets, say, a winter cold, but it's now taking three weeks and four weeks to shake it. We know from very senior oncologists that cancers 
are coming back from with patients who were in remission. All of this we know, and all of this, of course, is on my website. And this is edited and collated information from all over the world. Not big pharma. Not big pharma. Or not people paid or beholden to big pharma. Or politics. So what I would suggest is, what I would suggest is, and of course, Andrew Bridgen has been trying for this, to get an inquiry, to get some kind of inquiry going as to why. Now, it's not for me to say why. I have my suspicions, believe me, uh, and I have a lot of evidence on my website. But what we need is a proper inquiry to say why. Why are people getting sick? Why are there excess deaths? Now, what makes me suspicious is Andrew Bridges has only suggested this. He's been kicked out of the Conservative Party. Uh, he's been shunned by uh, Parliament because of so much political capital. Safe and effective. It's going to save you. Safe and effective. Hancock, Johnson. Biden, the whole political dynamic was behind this. The whole of the press, every single TV press presenter was actually wrong. This season. I'm saying, aren't I a good boy? I'm being jabbed. So we know all about this. So I'm not saying one thing or the other. What I'm saying is we should have a proper independent inquiry as to actually why we are having these excess deaths and what is actually happening. Uh, and it's not just this country, it's global. Some countries are looking. Japan's beginning to look, for example, now. Uh, and there's a pushback in Canada where the numbers are appalling. So, yes, there is a problem. It seems to me that it's the suppression of our immune system for one reason or another. So we need to find out. Why are we so frightened of finding out? That's the question. Whenever I find politicians and deep state refusing to open up to any investigation, and I come back to another theme, which will run through every question you've got here, a free press. Mm. We don't have a free press. These are questions that independent journalists should be asking. TV presenters, newspapers, editorials, and they're not asking them. And that makes me deeply suspicious because everybody bought into it at the beginning. How can people stand up, the Piers Morgans of this world, the Jeremy Vines of this world, and go, oh, God. I should have paid a little more attention. I should have dug a bit deeper before I started recommending uh, uh, medication of any sort uh, before it had been truly looked at in any depth. Uh, and it's still happening today uh, with pregnant women, children, so on and so forth. And we just don't know. Uh, so we know that things are being covered up, but we don't quite know why. But we should find out way. Otherwise, you're going to get this speculation and distrust uh, of the entire medical system, which is getting worse by the month. That's not in anybody's interest at all. So let's have a real inquiry, not this fake one they've just done. So, you know, I mean, that was just ludicrously fake. Let's have a real in-depth one. Well, let me bring up, we'll jump ahead, actually, to um, to this story, which is the, the inquiry. I, I believe, actually, it's going to be the most expensive inquiry ever in, in British history. Um, and it's running something like £100 million, uh, for per two months or something crazy like that. And here we have the COVID inquiry postpones vaccine investigation. This is, of course, because the expectation is uh, we will have a, a general election. So this has been... Uh, put back. Um, 
I don't think many of us really believe that this COVID inquiry will actually uncover anything. It seems to be just to make money for legal teams. But um, were you expecting anything different, Godfrey, than stuff getting postponed and brushed under the carpet? No. I mean, anybody old geezers like me who used to be devoted to yes, minister, know exactly what an inquiry is all about. (laughs) An inquiry is simply brought in to cover the truth. That is the point. And the longer you delay the report, more people are going to forget and more people are going to actually die, aren't they? So all the people who are giving evidence at the moment, whatever that evidence may be, uh, are not going to be revealed for at least another year and probably another two years. Well, that's very convenient if they're not here in two years. And they likely as not won't be here in two years, will they? So... This is what it's all about, and uh, and 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 those inquiries. I still laugh at Yes Minister, and if there's any younger members who haven't watched Yes Minister, watching your channel or my channel, uh, get the DVDs out and watch them. If you want to know how the British government works, get Yes Minister and watch every one because it's very funny, very true. It was Maggie Thatcher's favourite program because she knew. That's how the British government works. And, of course, if the writers came back today, they would have a field day because they could actually include World Economic Forum, World Health Organization. But, of course, it's now beyond a joke. It used to be funny. Now it's just plain sinister. No, it is. Uh, uh, Yes, Minister. I absolutely love it. I got the DVD set and five series. uh, I would encourage anyone, as Godfrey just said, to make sure you get a hold of it, watch it. Uh, British humour at its best um, and showing what we're facing. But let's go over to Europe. Um, We had a a guest on a few days ago, German farmer, discussing what's happening in Germany. Um, And a couple of things uh, that have been happening there. And here we have, of course, um, uh, Donald Tusk taking over. I'll just play two little video clips. The first one is people protesting at Donald Tusk sacking uh, MPs or arresting them. Uh, and then after he closed down the TV station, then we've got the, the, the German government wanting to shut down farms because they're awful. Uh, growing food for humans, that's bad. But here's one clip of people protesting against Donald Tusk um, and his new methods over in Poland. So that is that. Let me bring up just the other video, which is of the the farmers. And they're two kind of separate things. But there is, I think, growing unrest uh, in in Europe at many of these things. Uh, Let me just bring up this. And here it is. Let me obviously, God, for your time as a as an MEP, uh, ten years there in in the belly of the beast in Brussels, uh, and you saw a lot of things happening. I think you just stepped down before Donald Tusk took over um, in Europe. But what what are your thoughts looking at this? Um, not only what's happening in in Poland, but I think even more what's happening in Germany with farmers demanding the right to actually grow food to feed human beings. 
Well, of course, we first saw this in very big numbers in Holland. Uh, and what is absolutely fascinating is that the, de the demonstrations in Berlin and Munich at the moment are huge. Brings me back to a free press. You will not find these demonstrations on mainstream me media. You won't find them on BBC or Sky. Uh, they've been snuffed out. So uh, everybody is believing that they alone uh, think like they think, and they're sometimes frightened to express their opinions. All this is World Economic Forum uh, stuff. And they, I get annoyed when people say, oh, you're a conspiracy theorist. I'm not. I'm a conspiracy analyst, all right? Uh, there's no theory because Klaus Schwab, the King of England, the Chancellor, Sunak, everybody is totally upfront about what they want. They are Malthusians. They believe there are too many people on the planet. How do you reduce the number of people on the planet? You starve them. How do you starve them? You close the farms. Uh, you give them dodgy medicine. Uh, you do all these things. Or you even breed mosquitoes. <laughs> you introduce malaria into areas in the United States which has never had mala uh, malaria in, in there. Another Bill Gates game. Uh, the oligarchs have so much money, they buy the press. Uh, the Bill Gates of this world uh, and uh, and the George Soros of the world, they own the press, which is why we don't have any independent journalists, very few. You have, of course, uh, you have uh, uh, Sean Hersey, whatever his name is. I, I just forgot his name. Um, uh, you have in this country Sonia Paulson. Uh, you have Whitney Webb uh, in the United States. And, of course, Julia Assange got the ball rolling. And, of course, he's banged up in pokey. Uh, you don't last long. And of course, you criticize the Clintons, so on and so forth, that you end up dead, uh, which is put down as suicide with a small bullet wound in the back of your head. Somehow you manage to get your head round and shoot yourself on the back of the head. Uh, so uh, all these sort of things. So it's snuffed out. But it's normally it's money. It's a mixture of money and inter uh, intimidation. So this has got nothing whatsoever. Nothing whatsoever to do with conspiracy theory. It's, cons it's, it's, it's an, an analysis. Uh, and the king, the king had to cut bits of his speech out, his Christmas speech, because his advisor said, you can't say that. <laughs> you, you can't say that everybody's got to eat bugs to save the planet when you've got sort of three castles, five monster homes, 48 cars and private jets, you know. And of course, <laughs> he doesn't get it, does he? Because he's a bit of a lemon. But this is the problem. Uh, it's never been so much us and them. And of course, we know that Penny Mordaunt, is in Bill Gates's pocket. Bill Gates can see the Prime Minister by picking the phone up whenever he likes. Big, big money talks. And our politicians are relatively easily bought. Hmm. Boris Johnson being an absolutely classic example. Lord only knows how much money he got for flying off to Kiev uh, to tell them to keep fighting, which cost another quarter of a million young Ukrainian lives and about another 25, 30,000 young Russian lives. Uh, he flew up there. But of course, you know as well as I do, and I think most people watching these channels, my channel, your channel, know that in order to be a successful politician, I mean successful, I mean getting to the top of the greasy pole, you have to be a sociopath. Yeah. Yeah. I can guarantee you that every night Boris Johnson sleeps soundly. He doesn't have a single Ukrainian life on his conscience. Matt Hancock won't have a single old person in, a, in, in an old people's home on his conscience. They don't think like you and me.
They don't think like people down the pub. These are preclinical sociopaths. And they are the people in power in Washington, in London, in the civil service, in a very quiet, more modest kind of way. And we're seeing that come out of the woodwork, you know, more and more, aren't we? The civil service who are pulling the strings here and there, fake inquiries, the honours system, the whole thing stinks. It's rancid. We are now a banana republic and we're going down the lavatory as fast as the United States. We are. And you mentioned King Charles, Charlie, and this is an interesting one. Um, I've always been a, a monarchist and talking to a lot of my friends uh, love Queen Elizabeth, the monarchy. That is changing. And here uh, in the Daily Express, royal family faces breaking point as support drops below 50% for the first time. Public support has dropped below 50% uh, according to new findings in a poll. Um, I think this is a, a, a change. Obviously, whenever we move from uh, Queen Elizabeth on to King Charles, that was a massive change in our society, in our culture, in our history. Um, and it's interesting the amount of people who don't have much love, not only for Charles, but obviously you mentioned about his speech. I think the the BBC picked up that the most important part that he was beside a Christmas tree that could be replanted. Forget about the birth of Jesus and the special time of year. It's about a Christmas tree. But what what are your thoughts on the, the royal family, Godfrey? Well, of course, this was inevitable, and I said it was inevitable some years ago. Uh, Her Majesty had war service. For better or worse, and she made some constitutional mistakes, of which there is no doubt. But she was broadly loved and respected by not just in this country, by the whole world, and particularly, of course, the Commonwealth. And I held the Queen's Commission as did my father hold the King's Commission, and so on and so forth, back several generations in point of fact. So we are monarchists. I come from a monarchist family. I'm not too sure which side my family took in the, uh, whether it was parliamentarian or for King Charles I, I couldn't tell you. Um, but that's neither here nor there. And I think most of the country are monarchists. Um, they may not be sort of uh, you know, rabid monarchists in much the same way that, they, that most of them are Christian. Uh, if they're indigenous population Christian, that doesn't mean to say they go to church. They're not God botherers, but broadly speaking, live a, uh, a Christian life as best they can, as, as I do, as we all do, probably. Uh, but uh, we're not a big, you know, beat the drum, really come to the mission kind of people. Now, what's happened is with um, Charles, first of all, He's intellectually dishonest. Uh, and that's people, people aren't as stupid as, people, as, as the media think they are. Uh, they, can, they know intellectual dishonesty. They will not be preached at about when they go on holiday or, or whether they turn their heating up or whether they use so-called fossil fuels, which are fossil fuels instead, but leaving that aside. Um, all these things by somebody who has Windsor Castle, Balmoral, Sandringham, Highgrove, and it goes on and it goes on, uh, who, who, who was a champion of organic food, now wants us to eat presumably organic bugs, I don't know, uh, but the guy is intellectually dishonest. He also peddles what I think most people know in their hearts of fake science. 
Um, and he made it clear the other day, I, well, I think it was four, because he said, I've been banging on about this for 30 years, climate change and all this. And, well, uh, and nobody would stand up and say, yes, 30 years. So when's it going to happen? You've been at it for 30 years and it hasn't happened, you silly little man. Uh, and this is the problem. And, of course, he's surrounded with sycophants. Yeah. And I've seen some of this stuff over the years from the inside. I've seen some of this from the inside. He has a very large staff. The Duchy of Cornwall pays for it, who agree with everything he says. It doesn't matter what silly thing he says. Everybody will applaud and say that was brilliant. Nobody says, just a minute, don't you think you ought to do a bit more homework? Or just a minute, there's no evidence for what you've just said. Or don't you think you're pushing your luck a bit, living the lifestyle that you do as one of the world's richest men, criticising the little guy who wants to go to Spain on his holidays? Uh, he's not getting any of this. And, of course, where I think he actually lost it to start with, he married uh, a beautiful girl, uh, socially his superior. The Windsors are really just middle class, to be brutally frank. They're middle class. He married a noblewoman from a family much, much older and more prestigious of his face. So he shouldn't have married out of his class. That's point one. Um, and yes, OK, she was probably a bit of an airhead, uh, but she was a, a pretty girl. And I think a lot of people, and she was very popular. Mm. And I think a lot of people said, well, look, you've got so many houses. You've got five houses. You've got staff. You've got servants. You've got cars. You've got chauffeurs. Couldn't you have made it work? Couldn't you have just made it work just to set an example? Uh, couldn't you have done that? Or you were too lazy, arrogant, and appalling to just try and make it work for the good of the children, for the good of the family, for the good of the country. He could have made it work. He could have worn the mask, if you like. Uh, but no, that was too much trouble. Then worse, he puts his mistress on the throne. Yeah. Now, <laughs> I come from a very middle-class background, fairly bourgeois. <laughs> uh, we don't like that kind of thing. You keep your mistress a bit secret if you've got a mistress, and we're not French, so you shouldn't have one anyway. Um, so uh, he's made no effort. And I think now that he's reaping, and if he, if, if he thinks it's 48% um, uh, in favour of the, of the monarchy, you ain't seen nothing yet. Yeah. We'll have this conversation in a year's time, it'll be probably 27 28%. And I wrote an article some years ago now on Going Postal, wrote an article some years ago saying, will the monarchy survive Charles? The answer is, I don't think it will. And there's no point in putting his son on the throne and abdicating because his son's just as bad. He's another WEF stooge. And he really is not very bright. Yeah, a lot of Americans say, I'll go straight to William. And I point out that would be no better. He's just no, younger, no different. Um, let's, there's been a the big scandal here in the UK. Um, and this is the <laughs> post office. I'm not sure whether I think uh, Sunak said this was the, the biggest stain on British history or something. Uh, I'm quite shocked he would go that far, but it was a travesty. And this is a different angle to this. Revealed how disgraced ex-post office chief Paula Venels nearly became the Bishop of London after being supported in her application by Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby. Um, and of course, she oversaw the, the post office while these individuals who ran the post offices, um, actually the, the, the IT system showed that they had been basically taking money and they had to make up the losses. And, and that's a travesty. 
Um, but it's interesting that actually she actually could have ended up being, uh, she might have actually done a better job. The Bishop of London, uh, the, the woman in charge, isn't, isn't the greatest. Um, uh, I know you've got no love for Welby. Uh, what are your thoughts on this, Godfrey? Well, this throws up so many things, and I, for a long, I, I don't often agree with Sunak, but I agree. This is a very, very serious failure of our country and its institutions. Very serious. And in my view, it started with Blair, this degradation. So what have we got here? We've got so many things here, haven't we? We've got um, sub-postmasters who have been screened and selected very carefully for their honesty Hmm. and their place in the community. So you were dealing with hundreds of people who by selection procedure, were fundamentally good people. And I'm sure we've, I've had personal friends who were uh, uh, sub-postmasters and mistresses. Uh, salt of the earth. And I won't be the only person that's saying that. And lots of us know that. They were the salt of the earth. So how is it that that could come about? That's point one. Point two is how could the judiciary not maintain a fundamental principle of English law, which is a presumption of innocence. Mm. How could you sit on the bench and assume that the computer was right and the man in front of you with an impeccable background was lying and a crook? How could you assume that in so many cases? And, of course, the answer is to the, uh, the judiciary has been degraded. So the people sitting on the bench now are not proper people, they're political appointees. So you're getting a very low quality of judge or recorder or crown court judge or magistrate. These are very poor quality people. They used to be drawn in the 1950s and up to the 1950s uh, from people who were either very good lawyers, uh, uh, proper members of the community, so on and so forth, very often with a war record of that generation, of course. Now you've got Every bit of flotsam and jetsam sitting on the bench, you've got quotas. You've got people there because, not because they were great lawyers, because they were friends of friends of somebody, or they fit a gender uh, quota or or, or an ethnic quota, all these sort of things. So you're not getting a meritocracy on the bench. That's fundamental. So this is the next thing. And who would know how, if you've got to choose before somebody with an impeccable record who is a postmaster and a machine, You choose the postmaster, not the machine. Machines are fallible. But here we are on the threshold of AI, artificial uh, intelligence, which isn't intelligence at all, as we all know, because we have to deal with it. Try phone the HMRC. Try and phone any institution. Your call is important to us. Uh, You're on hold. You're fifth in the queue because nobody employs people anymore. Uh, They've got a machine, and machines are desperately fallible. And this is the problem. So you have a corruption. Uh, then you have you bring it right on to the honest system. And I did a piece that's on my website with um, Sonia Poulton on this. We went right through the list, nearly, and we picked out who's on the honest committee. Who are on the honest committee who didn't see her name as being a wrongen? This woman is a wrongen. And did nobody on that committee go just a minute? Oh, we can't give her a CVE. Do you know what she's responsible, where she is? Uh, but the list is full of people like that. Mm-hmm. Jobsworths, people who've been around, people who tick the boxes. Um, 
it would be no surprise if she had turned up as the Bishop of London if she's sponsored by Will because he's another wrong one. Yeah. He's another wrong one. Uh, so the whole country has been degraded, but this has actually <clears throat> thrown a light on the degradation of our institutions. <clears throat> and the only way that we can bounce back from this, the entire honours committee must be sacked. Mm. We must have a criminal investigation because there's a lot to do here. There's uh, non-disclosure. Uh, uh, and it needs to be taken apart. Non-disclosure. Uh, perjury. All these things are in this mix. And of course, what will we have? Ha ha. We'll have another bloody inquiry, which will release all the information in 2030. Yeah. It's a piss take, isn't it? And it goes on and it goes on and it goes on. And you can't vote them out. It doesn't matter whether it's the big charities, government, the civil servants. We have no system of getting shot at them. Unless, of course, we have a look back at the French Revolution and start chopping a few heads off. I'm becoming more inclined to this solution day by day. It, it, it does sound a great idea, the more the mess we end up in. Um, let's, uh, we've got three more stories. Two of them are about uh, actually net zero, and this is electric vehicles. Um, there have been a couple of stories on this in the last few days. This is one. <laughs> Electric vehicles, everything you need to know. End of the road. Huge blow to EV car revolution as sales to Brits plummet with electric cars just a quarter off new purchases. And this links it with another story that Hertz, uh, I think, had bought 20,000 Teslas um, and they're now actually getting rid of them all because there isn't the the demand. And, And I was with a friend, actually, Godfrey and they had a car hire. They they got a, a plug-in car, battery car, and it was a nightmare because they couldn't find somewhere to charge it and they were so worried. But um it it does seem as though uh it is coming to the end of the road. We've been sold something which is a lie, um, and people aren't buying it anymore. So it it does seem that people are wakening up to this, Godfrey. Well, I live near York. Uh, and uh, they've got 70, I think, it's 70 electric vans, which are all now in storage uh, because they can't be charged and there's no system to do it. They spent millions and millions and millions. I think they're a mixture. It's, it's a hung council between Liberal Democrats and Labour. You can imagine the kind of muppets on the York Council. So they've got all these stuff, spent millions of taxpayers' money. Uh, the whole thing from the very beginning didn't work. They don't work. How could they work? Uh, they're not even green. I mean, people go around with this sort of moral superiority in a car that has batteries which were dug out of dirt by children in the Congo. Where's their moral dynamic? And these people got the moral high ground with their little, you know, with their cottage in Provence and their couscous and all the kind of shit that they eat and talk, uh, brown ricers. I hate them all. They've all got their little, they've got their car, haven't they? They've got their... And of course, in five or six or seven years' time, when the batteries bucket, they're going to have a car which is worthless because the new battery is twenty-five grand, and the car's worth twenty grand at best. So the whole thing was nonsense to start with. Uh, if you want to drive to Southampton from where I live, my little small holding, which I'm going to have to do at some stage, actually leaving that aside, an electric car wouldn't do it. Couldn't do it. So I've got to stop at a wayside station and plug it in, and there's a queue. I could walk to Southampton quicker than go in an electric car. 
So the whole thing's bullshit. It was bullshit from the start. Uh, and people, of course, bless them, not everybody's as clever as us, you see, Peter, because we're clever little shirts, aren't we? We spotted all this at the beginning. Most people have to go through the machinery, whatever that machinery is, whether it's medicine, whether it's green cars, whatever it is, they have to go through. And then three or four years later, they go, God, you know, didn't I make a mistake? And you want to go, yeah, you muppet. You did, didn't you? But they're coming round now, Peter. They're coming round, aren't they? They're beginning to realise they've had their asses felt. Yeah, and and part of that is you're right. The whole slavery side, part of it is the cost. And here is a another story. Part of it is the the safety issue. And this is a <clears throat> London bus two days ago uh, going on fire. Dramatic moment. Electric double decker bus in London burst into flames after a huge bang. Uh, officials launch investigation after one of Sadiq Khan's. Just to remind us, it is Sadiq Khan's buses exploded during today's rush hour um it's not really what you want doesn't fill you with confidence these these buses and of course we saw the explosion in the car park in in luton airport um and they could barely they couldn't even put it out but um it looks as though again we're being pushed technology that not only is expensive cumbersome doesn't do what it says in the tin but it's also dangerous and surely this should make our government wake up um, and stop the madness. What would have happened if there had been old age pensioners on the top deck? Yeah. Um, it's a pity Sadiq Khan wasn't on the bloody bus, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> and here's another interesting talking about a free press, isn't it? Do you remember when the, the car uh, caught fire, caught all the other cars on fire at Luton Airport? Yeah. What was the first thing the press said? It was a diesel car, yeah. didn't they? Yep. They wouldn't be. So it was a cover up by the local press. So you're not even getting, oh gosh, Dieter. And of course, the import of these things now, they have to be dismantled virtually before they can go on a, on a, on a ship to be brought to, the, to this country. Uh, because uh, nobody will insure them. Lloyds of London won't insure them unless they're virtually uh, deconstructed uh, because they're not safe. And fine, if one catches fire, only one, uh, maybe out of 200, uh, on a big container ship or catch fire, you, as you say, they're difficult to put out. You've then got a very, very serious problem at sea. Shouldn't Panorama be on this one? Where's Panorama? You know, where's 40 Minutes? Or where's investigative journalist? Poor old Sonia Poulton can't do the whole bloody thing herself, can she? No, exactly. Um, and there's complete silence. Um Final story on immigration, which is another one that the media talk about as kind of entertainment, but not actually caring about it. Uh, and this is another aspect to the unlimited immigration that we are seeing. Of course, boats coming across the English Channel from France into, into England. Child claims almost 4,000 migrants caught pretending to be kids sneak into Britain with some in their 30s. Unaccompanied minors asking for asylum have the right to extra financial help with housing with a host family. Um, I mean, when I see the immigration stuff, Godfrey, we are being absolutely played for fools. And the media, to some extent, has covered this. Um, and yet we have a government that just is plowing ahead um, and mocking the, the British people. Uh, but it, it's no wonder that all these people want to pretend to be kids if they get extra benefits. And it does seem to be that they get everything when they arrive on British shores. 
Yes, it's not a new story, is it? Do you remember at the very beginning, some of the cartoons, I think it was Matt, uh, cartoonist, you know, there were there were men with beards yeah. in uh, in prams, uh, <laughs> with with dummies in and all this kind of thing. Uh, so yeah, very funny, uh, but not funny really if you, if you drill down. So, of course, another thing is that the problem that we have is that the government has subcontracted to certain agencies who are in favour of this kind of thing and hide this kind of thing. So they're sort of fake pseudo charities or government institutions which are deliberately hiding this. Mm. You have a home office which isn't fit for purpose. So yes, this is happening. No, it isn't new. But then it goes back. This is a WEF game. Uh, Theresa May signed up for the United Nations to bring in 100,000 of these people. They're of military age. There are almost no children or women in the boats at all. So this is about military-aged men in between around about 19 and 30, and it has been for some time. They're being brought in and given these luxury hotels, spending money, uh, three meals a day, medical treatment if they need it, so on and so forth. Now, here's the rub when it brings me back to press again. When did you ever hear, even from the back benches in Parliament, or a political journalist, excuse me, Prime Minister, this is quite deliberate, isn't it? This isn't incompetence. You're bringing them in quite deliberately. Government agencies, government-sponsored boats are bringing them in, sometimes from French waters, into Dover. Uh, and the numbers are getting more and more and more. Surely this, when we could stop it, we know that, well, I've said this a million times on my channel and your channel and other channels, if you put me in charge, I could stop this by Sunday. You gave me control of the Royal Marines and the Royal Navy. I would charter tugs uh, uh, under the Royal Navy. and I would tow these people back to France. And I've said it again, and I'll say it, with the Royal Navy. Take, we don't need the Royal Navy in the Black Sea or the Red Sea. None of our damn business. We need them in the English Channel. That's where we need our Royal Navy. And if the French get in the way, we sink the French boats. And that would give me great delight. We've done it before. We've done it for hundreds of years, sinking French boots, boats. Let's do some of that. Let's teach the buggers a lesson. I think it's a perfect way to end, Godfrey, uh, with that vision of a a Godfrey future, which, which actually can solve it. Godfrey, I really appreciate you coming along. Thank you so much for your time today and sharing your thoughts on those stories. Great pleasure. Thank you for having me on your channel. Thank you. If you like what we do, sign up to our mailing list, donate, share, and subscribe to our many platforms at heartsofoak.org. Thank you for listening.